Hey everybody, welcome to this week's roundup. I just got the first shirt off the assembly line for the Lag is Real shirt, and it is even funnier in person than I could have imagined. I absolutely love this thing. I know if you're listening audio only, you hear me standing far away from the mic talking about it, so you'll have to bear with me for a moment, but the shirt itself is very soft. It's thin, so I guess it's more of a not winter shirt, but I have hoodies I put over it. So I, we wanted to go for a really high quality one because we figured if you're going to spend a bunch of money to uh, to be silly, you might as well be really comfortable doing it. But the front came out great. It is hilarious. Uh, we got the side. We got the uh, you know the trust no one the RGB Illuminati in the back. Of course, we have the uh, uh, both of our tags and uh, you know another another fun little thing on there. So this is the last week they're going to be available if anybody wants them. I just think they're hilarious and all profits are going to go to fund arts lag research. So if you want to be silly and also just kind of help out and figure out what's going on with all the crazy advances in PC latency, maybe consider buying one of these. And, you know, somebody had mentioned too, they uh, thought it was funny, but they didn't want to wear a shirt with my me flipping the bird on it. So what about a mug or something? So if you have any other ideas, maybe after this is over, we'll just do one more run of like a mug only or something. But anyway, let's jump in and see what we got this week. First up, Shank was recently a guest on Kevin Kenson's channel to discuss the different GameCube Joy-Cons. So for anybody that didn't see the video, which I'm sure most of you did because it's got millions of views, Shank did a video a few years ago about making Joy-Cons that kind of looked and felt like a GameCube controller. And there's been a few different products released that basically took that idea and ran with it in a mass-produced way. And some of them we've covered before, others we haven't. And they just kind of sat down and had a talk about how they felt each one played and what the advantages were and if they liked them or not. And I just thought it was a really cool perspective because, you know, everybody's got their own opinions, but there's still some some technical facts behind how a lot of these things are built. So it's kind of one of those things where I suggest watching the video if you're into something like this and really seeing, you know, listening to their opinions and seeing for yourself what you think. I absolutely loved that at one point Kevin made a joke like, well, you know, is this something that Shank would figure out or is this a problem that all of us would run into? Because it was a fun tease, but it was very true. Because especially any engineers that work on products, you know, you tend to over obsess about things, which is good. That's what we're supposed to do. But when you're talking to other people about it, it's very good to always put things into consideration. And, you know, for me, it's always lag, right? Like um, my favorite games are turn by turn role playing games. Cool. Get, get anything, plug it directly in your TV, you're fine. You know, whereas my favorite games are fighting games or, you know, Mega Man from like original NES. It's like, no, you have a serious problem. And that's how they approached it. You know, here's the nitpicks. Here's the things that you would seriously run into. And I thought that was pretty cool. The only weird thing is NYXI uh, seemed to have bots that were posting fake reviews on the video. And then they claimed it was somebody trolling them. I don't know. That's some weird shit. I'll let you decide for yourself what you think that was all about. If that really was a very strange bot and trolling, then I feel very bad for the company. But has anybody ever heard of that before? I don't know. Anyway, check out the video on Kevin Kenson's channel. And uh, if you're into anything related to alternative Joy-Cons that are in the style of different controllers. A very cool project has just re-emerged for the Sega Saturn, and there is no release yet. There's no pro projected release date. I don't want to get anybody's hopes up, but it was absolutely worth discussing because it is a pretty neat idea. It's essentially a Sega Saturn cartridge 
that you could boot ISOs from as well as act like a RAM cart and a backup save cart. And I guess maybe even an action replay cheat card as well if it could do all that stuff. Now, the problem is that it's not very compatible and there are some timing issues that result in corrupted data. However, this project started all the way back in 2013 and just now got its first update in eight years that increased some compatibility. So basically the project resurrected and there's some potential for this thing to be completed, which I just think is incredible. One cartridge that you could plug into your Saturn and have everything that you would need right from it. And if you want to go to another Saturn, you unplug it, plug it into another Saturn. I think a no cut or a no cut mod and a no mod version, a complete plug and play solution like that would be absolutely nuts. However, it's not really there. No one's positive if it could actually be done at the moment. A bunch of retail games do play perfectly, but not a lot. So it's kind of wondering where this project's going to go. I also really Really hope they put a Wi-Fi module on it. I can't say that enough. I'm sorry if everybody's just sick of me hearing it, but for the three bucks it'll cost for a cheap Wi-Fi chip, I might be exaggerating a little bit, but seriously, for just a few dollars to put a Wi-Fi chip on there, to give the ability to stream ISOs from a retro NAS server or any network share would just even further in increase what you could do with this thing and just make it easier to manage. Now, Dave from the Shiro crew, did an absolutely phenomenal post that brings brings you all the way back to the beginning and walks you through all of the different progress that this cart has gone through, as well as the most recent update and kind of shows you exactly what it's up to right now. So if you're interested in this, I strongly, strongly recommend reading through this whole thing. I did. I read every word and really appreciated all the detail that was in here. So, um, you know, if you're interested in it, definitely read the post. We'll keep you updated if there's any kind of beta testing or, you know, even private release or something. But I just think this has the potential to be the accessory for the Sega Saturn. One cartridge that does everything. And especially, please put a Wi-Fi chip in there and it really can do everything that you would need it to do. So, you know, very, in fact, with a Wi-Fi chip, I'm wondering what it would take to even have Netlink compatibility built in as well. I know that's, uh, I'm asking a lot there, but put the Wi-Fi chip in first get it to load ROMs, and then we'll figure out what else we could do with it. But this is exciting. I think this would be the go-to for Saturn fans. So hopefully it's even possible. But as of now, it's just kind of a work in progress proof of concept. This week's roundup is once again sponsored by JLC PCB. And this week, I have a super important lesson for anybody that does PCB assemblies. Anybody. This one is huge. And it turns out it's not JLC PCB's fault at all, but it wasn't our fault either. So a very, very quick bring you up to speed of what's going on. I had wanted to remake the SCART cleaner as one of these fun ads that I've been doing, and we ran into tons of problems. Some of it had to do with transferring the files between Eagle and Easy EDA. Other things were bill of materials problems that were absolutely 100% my fault. And the last issue that we had was that sync wasn't working correctly when you turned on the sync stripper. So we had gone back and taken the original files from four years ago, only changed the connector on the end and remade those again. And this batch came in with the same problem. So as I said in a few, a few weeks ago, we replaced every component on here. But what I didn't do is replace the LM1881 sync stripper with one of the originals from years ago. And once I did, everything worked perfect. 
So isolating it, taking that sync stripper out of the circuit, putting it on its own and testing it, it worked fine, but under load in circuit, it didn't. So I started doing some research and it looks like that chip was end of life and LCSC was able to get some. However, that begs the question, are they counterfeit chips? Are they original chips, but made from a different manufacturer that took the same part number, but they don't work the same as the original one that was discontinued. And that's what is absolutely worth a couple minutes of your time this week, because this is something that anybody might run into. So first and foremost, this is why you always do a small test run of production first. So for this, I was going to see if any one of the resellers wanted to make 100 of them. So I made 20 first just to make sure. I probably would have made 10, but I had a couple of friends I'd promised to give them to. So make a small run. If you're making 100,000, maybe make 1,000 your first run just to be sure. Now that we've determined this is the problem, though, what do you do? Well, from a JLC PCB point of view, or to be honest, any PCB assembly house, nothing. You might let them know that this was an issue just so they could flag the part, but they did nothing wrong. They assembled the part that I told them to put on and they assembled it perfectly. Now, what about LCSC? Is it their fault? Who knows? Maybe they just thought they hit the jackpot and got a whole bunch of LM1881 so they're able to supply them back to the market. Maybe they know that they're made from a different manufacturer. Maybe they know it's a different part or maybe they're counterfeit. Who knows? But I don't think I would quote put blame in their direction, especially because in the middle of a part shortage, all of these companies are just scrambling to get whatever they can. But we only made 20. So what do you do now? Well, if this was something that you were about to make a run of a thousand of, which I don't think a thousand people need this adapter, by the way, but if that was the case, what I would suggest that you do, and please, other experts chime in right here, but procure your own LM1881s. Order Order one sample from any retailer that you know has them, do a test, then order your thousand of them, test a couple of those randomly, so you know, maybe order a thousand and ten or something just to double check, and then send those parts to JLC PCB and have them use your chip on the design. So that is a very easy way to get around doing this, and all it would do is delay the process a little bit, but it guarantees that you don't have to change your project. Because if you're paying people to do design files, or if you're a small shop where every second of your time is a lot of money, essentially, you don't want to have to spend the time to redo it. Now, there's two other solutions you could go through. You could just try an alternative part, or you could try working around the issues of this one. Now, the alternative part is easy to talk about because then you would just find something that does the same thing, rearrange the circuit around it, and then remake another one by hand, redo another assembly, recheck the bill of materials like we've been doing. So it might knock the project back a couple of months. So that's something that we're going to consider doing because while this is really a niche product that only a few people would need, it's a fun one and it's open source and I want everybody to have it. The other thing that you could do is work around problem. And I don't know if that's ever really the good thing to do, because that's essentially a band-aid solution. Because what if the next run of these LM1881s has a different problem? But as a last-ditch resort, we did figure out a way to reverse the order of how things are laid out on this in order to have the LM be the last chip in line and kind of get around the problem. That's a video for another day, but you could do that. We could do that. We could probably make a run of a couple hundred of these that work flawlessly, 
But I don't normally recommend doing that because what if you do that and then the next time you go place an order, there's another chip, there are another copy of the chip that has another problem. So while these ads may have been boring to some of you, I think that anybody who makes PCBs either got a kick out of them, got a kick out of laughing at me, both of those are fine. But I do think people have learned from this because here's a very unique situation where after the mistakes that I made were clear up, everything's perfect about this. JLC PCB didn't do a single thing wrong. And heck, even the parts supplier may or may not have done something wrong. It may have just been they were excited to get a part and listed it and didn't check for all kinds of fringe scenarios because this chip would absolutely work in many, many designs, just not exactly the way the original worked. So hopefully this week added some perspective to people who are making these PCB plus assembly builds. And hopefully at the very least, that adds some caution to never jump right in and just do a large run of anything. Make sure to do a couple of test runs and get your manufacturing process lined up and get it to a point where you're confident in saying, okay, this is what I need, I'm ready to go. Chris from Displaced Gamers just posted a very awesome behind the code video that shows you how the opponent boxers in Punch-Out work on a code level, of course. And it was really interesting to see how it was broken out because there's actually three different engines, if you will, running in the background. I probably got that wrong, sorry, Chris. But every time the boxer goes to do a move, it pulls from three different things. What kind of move, You know how, it, what animations are going on. And some of that is randomly generated and some of it isn't. And it was really, really cool to see because I've been watching speedrunners and other people who have just been mastering Punch-Out forever. And it was really neat to see what was going on behind the scenes as this is happening in real time. And it was one of those things where, you know, if you're not a programmer, definitely pay attention, but you absolutely will be able to wrap your head around it. Chris does a great job with these videos. So if you want to see in real time with an on-screen fight log, if you will, uh, how this works, I would definitely check out this video. This was a great one. And, you know, maybe Chris would dig in deeper to this and kind of show how some of the other uh, portions of this work as well. But this was a fun one. Fixel has just opened up an interest checklist for a pretty unique optical drive emulator for the FM Towns Marty. Now, just to be clear, it's an interest checklist. So there's no money down. You're not required to purchase anything. It's just to get an idea of who would want something like this. But this is something that I think if you're into that console or if you own one, you might want to at least consider. And I'll explain why, because this one gets pretty interesting. Ronnie did a great detailed post on it if you want more details, but here's the basic overview. The FM Towns Marty is a console that was only released in Japan and they're notorious for dead CD-ROM drives. So right off the bat, an ODE seems pretty interesting. However, they also came with a three and a half inch floppy drive that served two purposes, saving your games and booting your games. So that would mean that even if you had an ODE for the Marty, you would also have to constantly be swapping around three and a half inch floppy disks, which may not may or may not age that well. Your floppy drive might be dead. And obviously they're not the fastest medium on the planet. So Fixel is looking to have this device do both. So that way you could just load up both your media on the SD card and it would automatically save and read and load from the optical or from the floppy drive emulation. And then the game itself would just be from the optical drive emulator. So this is pretty unique and it's not something that's ever been done before. So 
just the fact that this even exists is pretty unique, but also that you don't need to submit a DNA sample, your social security number, and purchase between the hours of 1 and 1.02 a.m. on a random Saturday when the moon is full makes this something that any FM Towns Marty owner would seriously want to consider. So definitely check out Ronnie's post for more details. And uh, I've never even seen one of these in person, so maybe I could borrow one after the ODE is released to check it out. Chris from Classic Gaming Quarterly just posted a video review of the Retrobit Big 6 controller. And that is the Genesis 6-button controller that's the size and shape of a Genesis 3-button controller. My personal, one of my favorite controllers ever. SNES controller, then that one for me, definitely. And overall, he seemed to like it. There were no complaints at all about the start button, which was one concern I had because the start button was located dangerously close to the XYZ buttons, and it made it seem as if that you could accidentally slip your hand over and hit the button, but that never seemed to be an issue at all. The only issue that Chris had was that on original three-button controllers, and I guess even six-button, if you are holding the D-pad right and you lean up a little bit on it, it doesn't register the up command until you actually move your hand up on the D-pad, whereas this one's a lot more sensitive. Now, I don't know if that's a problem for most people. I don't know if that's something that'll slowly wear down over time. Uh, maybe there was an accidental comparison of a 30-year-old controller versus a brand new, and maybe the old ones used to work like that. I don't really know, and Chris doesn't claim to be the you know end-all, be-all reviewer of Genesis controllers, but he definitely wanted everybody to know it, because if that's something that annoys you, you're going to want to know before purchasing. But overall, it got a good review, and Beast also liked it, and Beast is very, very picky with his controllers. So if Beast liked it and Chris liked it, I think it's going to be something that you could feel safe purchasing, but you're definitely going to want to know which one to purchase. The original Genesis controller should perform like an original six button controller. Uh, you know, obviously we'll have to do a latency testing confirm, but there's no reason why it shouldn't. Their USB version, which for some reason isn't available anywhere yet. You could pre-order on Castlemania, but Amazon or Stone Age Gamer don't even have them listed up. Um, that one has no info on it. Now, Retrobit's other USB controllers have performed very well. Some better than others, but none were bad. So my gut's telling me that one should be fine as well, and that's the one that I would like to purchase for use with my mister, of course. And then there's also the wireless version that comes with both a USB and a Genesis receiver module. And the wireless controller that I had tested from Retrobit was kind of laggy. It's been years, so maybe they had improved the latency on it, but until latency numbers are posted, I would kind of hold off on the wireless controller. Unless you know for a fact, like, hey, this is a secondary controller, I'm using it for testing, whatever else, fine. But I, I just, latency and controllers are go hand in hand. So you need to make sure that it's not too laggy to use. So hopefully when people start receiving theirs, we could do some tests with it. I wish Retrobit would, I wish all of these companies would would publish their latency test numbers, knowing that we're going to double check them too. So you can't be posting fake numbers, but I just don't know why nobody does it. And especially because it could look at the bragging rights you could have, you know, you could just put, uh, you know, in your marketing, lowest latency tested controller for, even if people don't know what that is, you know, it sounds cool, right? So let's cross our fingers and hope that they're good. And when I get mine, I definitely want to compare it to the original Sega version of this, which isn't exactly the same. It's weird. It's like a, it's the same concept though. So hopefully when I get mine, I'll be able to put them side by side and see how they perform. 
Retro Gamer Store has opened up pre-orders on a new Power and AV module, the rear board for original Famicoms. And this thing is pretty cool, and it's got a bunch of different features, one of which I'm not too big a fan of, but the rest I am. So let's run through it real quick. First, it replaces the rear board in the Famicom, which is both the power board, but also the AV out. So that's how you get your RF output from these. And it replaces it with what looks to be a pretty well-built power circuit, and you could also choose between a mini DIN or a 3.5 millimeter jack output. And the reason you would do that is if you wanted to, or if you've already modded your Famicom, or if you want to use a very easy to add board that I'm, uh, I haven't seen in person, but it certainly looks cool in the picture, you could just add a very quick mod to your Famicom and pull composite video right from the mod and wire it directly to this. And that way you can have a very easy uh, composite mod 100% no cut because this will drop in the original shell and that 3.5 millimeter jack would fit fine. And I also like how this, this mod has all of the components, the capacitor and resistors, right where the signal is pulled. That should have potential for better quality than some of the mods where you would just solder one wire to the pin and then run it over to the backboard. So that's kind of a cool thing as well. You could also have a nine pin mini DIN. So the same as the Genesis two style, which is cool. If you eventually want to add an NES RGB, or if you just have a bunch of Genesis composite video cables laying around, I'm not a hundred percent sure if that's a no cut mod. If you're using their clear smoke, clear covers for the Famicom, it is no cut, but I'm not sure if that is on original shells. So you might want to look into that. Those covers are gorgeous by the way. So you might want to think about those as well, especially if yours is yellowed. However, the other functionality it has is if you've installed an NES RGB kit, Tim Worthington's kit, you could add that mini DIN and then just wire all of the connections directly to this board, making it very easy to break out the connection, you know, RGBS, S video and composite and audio directly to this. So those features are awesome. I, I would like to get one of these to test out prices between 35 and 50, depending on options, and they should ship by the end of March, the end of next month. So that board, as I've explained it so far, seems like a no-brainer if you have a Famicom and you, know, you want to have an easy power solution as well as some composite video output. The one thing that I didn't really like was there is the option for a USB power adapter. And this requires you to make sure that you have a USB charger that, that outputs the correct voltage, so you need 9-volt output as well, and is PD compatible. And it's my very strong opinion that when you mix stuff up like this, something will absolutely go wrong at some point, right? So this board, you put the power board in, you use the original Famicom power adapter or whatever triad power adapter you're using. Yes, of course, somebody could always plug the wrong power adapter in. But if you're using something labeled for an original Famicom on original Famicom, that seriously reduces it. But couple of years go by, somebody sees a USB-C port, they plug in a USB-C charger and doesn't work, something blows out, you know, that's something will always go wrong. So if you have a very specific need for that, by all means, go for it. And there are many people who disagree with me and say, it's my console, it's my USB adapter, you're an asshole for telling me what I'm supposed to do. Fine, but that's my opinion and it comes from quite a few years of, of computer hardware design and just dealing in the retro gaming scene. If you want to see completed installs, please check out uh, Ben from iFix Retro posted on Twitter, which is where I stole these pictures from in the post. Uh, he did an install on it and he seemed to like it all as well. So I would definitely check this one out. And, uh, you know, 
if you think I'm wrong about the USB power, let me know in the comments, but there's a, a lot of history as to why I have that opinion. And all of it comes from being burned basically, literally sometimes as well, but I mostly mean monetarily when it comes to power supply designs. So check it out for yourself if you're interested. Tito from Macho Nacho Productions did an awesome intro video about the new Gamebox Systems 64 HD, which is a HDMI kit for the Nintendo 64. Tito showed the installation, the features, and basically everything that you would want to know before purchasing this kit. And it is an awesome intro. So if you're even slightly interested in this, definitely check it out. He did compare it to the Pixel FX solution. And so you get to kind of see where, where the differences are and what the, you know, what you're missing using this cheaper kit than going to the Pixel FX one. I actually was able to borrow one, so I will hopefully be doing a live stream very soon to check it out myself as well. And I want to dig a little bit deeper into the analog output features of it. Um, I also want to lag test it and kind of do a bunch of other stuff with it as well. So for now, strongly, strongly recommend checking out Tito's video, uh, especially even before mine, because that way when I do the live stream, you kind of already know what to expect. and We can dig in and test this stuff together on a stream. So thanks to Tito for another great video, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to checking this one out in person. My schedule has been a bit nuts, so I haven't had time to do any more interviews, which I want to continue to do. I really love doing those. But if you want to hear from an awesome person in the gaming scene, RMC recently posted an interview with Rebecca Heinemann, who is a total vet in the scene. She has been doing this since the early 80s. She was the Atari National Video Game Champion and now works at a company old school doing a bunch of very cool development and gaming stuff. So, um, I'm only partially through this interview yet, but it's so far it's been great and I, I really have been enjoying it. So if you want to hear from, from two very cool people, I like Neil as well, obviously, definitely check this one out and it's available on YouTube or as an audio only podcast, just search for retro tea break and then you know search for the Rebecca episode. So thanks to, to Neil for doing those. And I'm looking forward to finishing that interview. Now it's time for this week's Mr. Updates, care of Lou from Lou's Retro Source. As usual, I'm just going to skim through these. However, if you're interested in anything that you hear, please check out Lou's video because he goes into all the details and it's better than does a better job than I do. But anyway, first up, Paul NB is working on Neo Geo CD support for the Mr. And it's in very early stages, but it can load CD images. So you could try it out with an unstable build if you would like. However, I think this is exciting, but I think we are missing something. And I mean this with respect, but could somebody who is an expert at Neo Geo CD games in the library, please go and work on a page on the console mods wiki to tell us which games are basically lower end version of the AES and MVS versions, which games are the same, but have, or maybe worse, but have better or different soundtracks, which are exclusives, which perform exactly the same as the original, but have different soundtracks. I would love that all broken out because it's just one of those things where, especially if you're using original hardware, everybody knows how long it takes for a game to load on the Neo Geo CD. Still not as, as long as PlayStation 3 sometimes, by the way, but you know, it's nice to know what you're waiting for. Are you going to be waiting for a different experience than your cartridge version? Or are you basically just kind of stepping down and you don't even know it? So I would love to have a reference like that if anybody has time. There's also a new release of the PlayStation Core with the ability to allow a real controller plugged in via snack and use a virtual memory card on the same slot. So the OSD for the menu will give the option to select a real or virtual memory card when snack is enabled. So very cool little trick. 
SRG320 posted info on the changes being made to the Saturn Core's CD block, and there's a significant problem that's preventing some games from starting up at all, like um, Castlevania or Worldwide Soccer. So it's kind of a snag in progress there, but uh, just really appreciate all of SRG320's work on this. On Patreon, Hotego's made changes to development workflow to more easily maintain and update cores, which includes consolidating all of the source code for the cores into a single repository, which I think is really cool. Uh, I kind of like that he's working on that. Um, also, there were some side effects that affected System of system 16B games, and there's a post detailing everything. So if you're a, a fellow nerd and you support Otago on Patreon, give that a read. It's pretty cool. And also, Wickerwaka finished the pinout for the GA20 tri- chip on the IREM M92 hardware. The GA20 is part of the sound system that handles sample playback, and that's the hardware that runs games like Ninja Baseball Batman and R-Type Leo. So progress on that, so we might someday see those cores added with those games as well. So as always, thank you so much to Lou for keeping up on this. There's no way I could without you, so I really appreciate it. And if you want all of the details on that, please check out Lou's channel and definitely subscribe. Okay, this last thing is not what you think. Please give me a moment, and then it probably is exactly what you think after that. But stick with me for just one minute here. Polymega has just announced that they will be releasing their software as a standalone app, both a free and a paid version. And this is important for a couple of reasons. First, I think almost everybody agrees that it is probably the nicest looking UI in any of the retro softwares that I've seen. There's some that come really close now and I've done a really good, people have done a great job getting this to look good, but I really think the Polymega is like at Plex level of, of UI interface. And I think it's great. Also, they've written their own BIOSes for CD consoles, which means while I'm sure there's going to be some niche scenarios where you need to swap stuff out, generally speaking, you should be able to just download the software, put your disc in the tray, and start playing your original games on your PC. And I don't think any other piece of software really works like that because you need to have the BIOSes, which are illegal to distribute because it's other people's intellectual property. So the fact that they wrote their own makes this pretty cool. The free version should do all of that, and the paid version seems like the things that you pay for are very fair. You pay for the ability to rip your game and then store it on their cloud server and play it anywhere you log into your Polymega app. That seems pretty cool and obviously justifies the price. There's also features like um, saving your save states in the cloud, which is awesome. Netplay, which I'm looking forward to see how they pull that off because it's not easy to do with retro, but keeping an open mind here. So overall, it seems like something that that's pretty that you might want to actually pay for, I guess, is the best way to put it. Now, there is a question as to how you get your ROMs on there. They have a hardware module. Yes, I know they're trying to make hardware still. Uh, We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, They have a hardware module that they say they're going to be offering for both people that don't have CD-ROM drives in their PCs anymore, so that's cool. But what about the cartridges? Do you have to buy their ROM ripping cartridge cartridge readers in order for this to work? What if you already own a Sani card reader? Or what if you just already have a ROM collection? So that hasn't been addressed yet. And that one's a huge one in my opinion, because if you only play your original discs, then that doesn't matter. But I think most of us have a healthy mix of the stuff that we want to use. So that's, that's it for the software side. I think at this point, before there's more details, before you're able to actually try a beta, I think we should all keep an open mind and a positive attitude about the software because it has the potential to be absolutely awesome.
Now, the hardware, on the other hand, um, this is something that I'm going to try really hard to be diplomatic about, but please understand that I have been talking with this company and I used to defend them all the time, but it's like six years now or something like that, and they still haven't really delivered and their price has more than doubled. So I'm kind of offended and defensive. I don't know. I don't really know how I would describe my emotions here. I'm just trying not to be a dick, but which is really hard for me, by the way. But basically, when it first came out, there were some delays. I made some wise-ass comments on social media, and which, strangely enough, led me to meet the CEO in person, check it out, and I thought it was awesome. But then you take into context the $250 launch price point. I thought it was really awesome. Because while people right off the bat were like, oh, I can get a Raspberry Pi for $1.50 and do it myself, that's not who the original Polymega was for. That $250 was a, a pretty cool price point for something that you just plug into your TV and start using. I thought that was really neat. Except it's $550 now for hardware that's like six or seven years old. I have no idea how they're justifying that price. I'm, I'm going to just leave it at that. Otherwise, I'm going to turn into an ass. So that's nuts. Um, and I feel really, really bad that anybody might hear the comments that I made back when it was 250 and think that that applies to what the price is now. That is not at all the same thing, although it is the, it's not the same scenario, even though it's the same hardware. So as you might imagine, you still can't buy one, which is just even in the midst of a global part shortage and the pandemic and shutdowns with all the shipping, crazy shipping issues the world had, even amidst all of that, the Polymega story stands out badly because they just, they failed every chance they could possibly fail. Some of it was their fault. Some of it wasn't so easy. I know to stand on the outside looking in, but we're talking five plus years now. So I think they've they've reached like badass consoles status, which if you're new to the scene, that's not a good thing. I think they're still sitting here saying, well, you still can't buy ours, but ours is great. Ours is the best. You'll love ours when it comes out. Like seven other people already got there, so it's definitely real. You'll definitely get it. You know, the pizzas are coming. The dragons are coming. Like, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, so I don't understand where their business model is with the hardware side of things. However, launching software should be a little bit easier for them to deal with. So as respectfully as I could possibly say it, which I know that wasn't very respectful, but that's all I got in me after, you know, after defending them for a while, I got to just say exercise extreme caution with your wallet and logic when it comes to purchasing Polymega hardware. However, there is no reason to believe that the software won't be good. There's nothing standing out that says, oh, here's all the reasons why this might stink. It's the opposite. Even with all of the weird negativity, I could genuinely say I have nothing but high hopes for the software and I'm going to keep an open mind until I get to try it myself. And I also understand what betas are like. So if there's bugs right away, that's cool too. But maybe they would consider opening up uh, a mid-tier for a while. So free is always free. And then mid-tier, you could do everything except save your games in the cloud for free for three months to try it out. Maybe that would entice people. And then if you really like it, that tier is gone and you could only, you know, you could only have the paid tier if you want those extra features. I don't know, but I'm keeping my mind open with the software, but I'm trying not to laugh at the whole hardware thing and that it's still going. 
All right, that's it for this week. As always, thanks to everybody who watches, listens, plays nicely in the comments, and especially thank you to anybody who supports in any way possible. The monthly services are what keep all this going, but also just clicking on affiliate links to buy the same stuff you were going to buy anyway at the same price is a massive help. Also, thank you to anybody who bought one of these shirts. I still think it's hilarious. Maybe I'm just a man-child moron, but I think this is awesome, and I really hope other people are going to laugh at it as well. So thanks very much. And I'll see you all next week.